Hey, what a great gift it is to uh, come into the uh, sanctuary of God and to be lifted into the heavenlies through the music ministry here at Faith. And uh, what we just heard uh, with uh, the voices uh, that told us as sinners to go down and pray, go down to the river and pray. And that's that's what we want to be about. So I want to just extend a, another welcome to anyone who's uh, come here for the first time or visitors and guests. We are grateful that you have joined us. Uh, this is uh, the launch of our ministry year. As, uh, as the school starts, uh, we look at September as the beginning of uh, our ministry year, as well as the launch of a new uh, message series in the Gospel according to Jonah. Uh, the Gospel according to Jonah. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Jonah is, uh, is considered just about uh, a fairy tale about a man that got swell, uh, swallowed by a whale. Uh, it doesn't say a whale, it's a great fish. Uh, but Jonah is actually a historical character. Uh, we find in 2 Kings chapter 14, it tells us that he was a real man, a real prophet. His father was Amittai, and he lived in the 8th century uh, B.C. under King Jeroboam. Uh, and we've also heard in the scripture reading this morning from Matthew 12 that Jesus acknowledged him not only as a historical figure and uh, a real prophet, but one who indeed spent three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, uh, which was to be a miraculous sign of one greater uh, than him who would come. Jonah is for real. Uh, Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament, not because of its significance, but because of its brevity. Jo uh, Jonah contains only 48 verses, uh, but there is great punch in its truths about God and about his character, and it involves a storm and the conversion of sailors, the miraculous rescue, a song of praise, a repentance uh, of Israel's arch enemy, and an intensely bold dialogue between God and Israel's most reluctant prophet. Herman Melville, uh, who wrote Moby Dick, says, Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul Jonah's deep sea line sound. What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is the, that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the floods surging over us. <laughs> well, let's dive into the deep of this first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, 
What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let's, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is that that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, what, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not, us, lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. Have you ever had an overwhelming urge to flee from something or someone or from some place? <laughs> you just had to get out of there. Uh, I was a young seminarian in St. Louis in my uh, mid-20s. And I went with another buddy seminarian to this place that was called a fun house. It was kind of a scientific phenomenon house with various illusions that baffled people. But it also had this maze. It had a maze that you could enter, and I did. And this maze was totally pitch dark. Uh, you were made to feel your way through, and uh, you were forced to contort your body in different ways to get through this very narrow passage. In the first room I entered, it was these cylindrical, uh, punching bag-type objects hanging from the ceiling that forced you to snake your way through like somebody walking through a very dense forest. Uh, the room got smaller and smaller until you had to uh, crawl on your hands and knees, and then you were forced to crawl on your belly as the passage got narrower and narrower. And as I was huddled down there in that pitch dark, narrow space, and all these people were before me, and I knew that all of these people were coming behind me to make it through that same narrow passage, I immediately felt claustrophobic. Like I was suffocating down in this dark, narrow space with my air cut off. For any of you who have any phobias or experience panic attacks, you might know what I'm talking about. Now, I don't ever experience that 
in flight or in a Cessna airplane with Bill Bowling, and I'm still waiting to go back up there for, with him. But immediately, without a lot of regard for other people behind me, I started to just back out of there as quick as I can, just crawling over people with great speed. And uh, as I got out, I walked out of the entrance, and I was just catching my breath. And of course, I felt a great sense of embarrassment, because there's a lot of kids going through this, and they were having a blast. <laughs> and here I was, you know, a 20-some-year-old you know, seminarian, and uh, you know, I tried to be dignified. And then I saw my friend. He had come out the other end. And uh, you know, he knew that there wasn't any other exits. And he, he came up, he says, well, what happened? What, what happened? And so, you know, uh, I had to tell him that I had this, you know, panic attack, this claustrophobic experience in there. And, uh, you know, when you tell stuff like that to friends, it's hard for them not to make fun of you. <laughs> but with all the courage that I could muster, I told him I wanted to try it again. And he agreed to go with me. Uh, before I went in, I spent some time watching the adults and the kids who were coming out the other end, and they were all, you know, happy and cheerful, and it was a great experience, and so that kind of gave me encouragement that you can make it. And so I entered with fresh determination and awareness that uh, I could do this, and I made my way through that dark denseness of that first room and started crawling, and then crawling on my belly and snaking my way through and having that same experience of all these people before me and after me. And there in the middle of that deep, dark place when we were just still inside, my friend said to me, we're going to die in here. <laughs> what are friends for? for? Now, fortunately... I was meditating on Psalm 23, <laughs> which says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. <laughs> and so I felt the comfort of God, and God was helping me to overcome my fears. And uh, his presence and his grace was bigger than the darkness the closeness of that space, and I was able to get through and enjoy the light on the outside. But the book of Jonah, his initial flight, it was not about the fear of death. It was not about suffocating in Nineveh. It was not about going to a foreboding place. It was about the repulsion of the compassion of God for the Ninevites. He was fleeing from an assignment to extend the grace and offer of salvation to the wicked Ninevites, the enemies of Israel. In chapter 4, he says, O oh Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So this is, he says, this is why I fled. 
It's because I know that you are a compassionate God. The book of Jonah ends with God trying to reason with Jonah to move his heart to care about the Ninevites by comparing his care to a wilted plant that he had cared for. And he says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle as well? God ends the book of Jonah with a profound rhetorical question that echoes beyond Jonah's hearing to remind us how often our hearts are far from the great compassion of the God of the Scriptures. He is the God of relentless compassion. This this theme resounds through Jonah from the first chapter to the last. And here in Jonah 1, it shows us Uh, the picture of the relentless compassion of the sovereign God for a depraved city, for some desperate sailors, and for a disobedient prophet. And we capture this reality in these movements in this first chapter, and we see this fleeing prophet. And now the word comes to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish. Arise and go to that great city. We need to first appreciate the holy judgment and justice of God as we enter into this this knowledge of Jonah. God is a righteous judge, Psalm 7 says, a God who expresses his wrath every day. The divine justice and judgment and wrath of God is sometimes considered an embarrassing, unwanted uncle of the Christian faith. People don't want to talk about God's justice and his judgment. They want to avoid it. But in a world full of evil, righteous anger and justice is the hope in our universe. It is never a contradiction to love. God's holy anger and justice And his grace kiss to bring peace. It is God's justice that justifies sinners. As Isaiah 53 says, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Uh, I remember one time being so deeply troubled by all of the passages in the scriptures about God's justice and judgment and his wrath. And there are a lot. And I was really struggling with a lot of those passages about God's justice and judgment. And I said, I'm, I've, got to, I've got to learn about this. I've got to, I, I want to understand uh, th- more about this God that declares so much righteous anger and justice and judgments in the world. I want to know more about this. And so I spent a week at least of just intensely reading through all of the scriptures, surveying all of the scriptures in a kind of a one single shot just to kind of review this whole thing. And this is what I discovered. That the love and the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness of God were so much more overwhelming than the God of his judgments and justice. I was just floored that he would be such an incredibly patient, forbearing, and loving God. If you ever just spend the time just reading through the scriptures, you will find that his grace is greater than our sin. That in his wrath, there is mercy. 
And so we see that here in Jonah, we see that God is a God of great grace as he caused Jonah to condemn the city and to declare its wickedness. The purpose is that it would move the Ninevites to repent and receive salvation. Now, the Ninevites were certainly guilty. The Assyrian kings were considered the terror mongers of Nineveh and were proud of their cruel and terrible reputation and went to great ends to celebrate and to memorialize their grisly battle scenes and torture of prisoners. Dismemberment, beheadings, and unspeakable things. Uh, It is a gory and blood-curdling as a history that we know, as Erica uh, Blatt-True said in her research, Grizzly Assyrian Record of Torture and Death. Think of ISIS. Think of Hitler and the Jews in, 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 in Germany. Many prophets were called to prophesy to the nations from the comfort of their home, but Jonah was called to leave his hometown and to confront this evil directly. And it's a good possibility that he would not be so welcomed and received. Uh, a single prophet walking in, condemning this city who's been destroying uh, the Israelites. Jesus said something in the Old Testament about they killed the prophet. I imagine Jonah felt that there would be a sentence of death as he entered that city. And so Jonah flees this hard calling. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. His response was immediate. It was clear. Jonah was running in the opposite way. Now, Jonah uh, was from a town around Nazareth, which is about 50 miles to Joppa, and immediately he goes to Joppa. It's about a 50-mile walk. And so he was determined to get away from uh, the Lord, to get away from Israel, to get away from any place of worship of the Israelites, to get as far away as he can. He goes to Joppa, and his intention is to board this ship and to go to Tarshish, which is in southern uh, east, uh, western Spain about 2,500 miles away, where Nineveh was on the opposite side of the world. His intention was to run as far away from the presence of the Lord. Yes, Jonah was rather deluded. He could think that he could get away from the presence of God. One preacher says, who can do that? Shovel smoke with a rake. To understand our ministry and our calling to the city, Uh, You know, God never calls people to himself without calling them to go out. Uh, He calls Abraham to himself, but then he says to go. You know, go, I am sending you. And so he does the same thing with Moses. He does the same thing with his disciples. God is a God who draws people to himself, but he sends them out on a mission of his gospel of grace. I remember sensing uh, God's call uh, to the city uh, soon after Marie and I got married in 1980 uh, when we moved into a formerly uh, formerly run uh, drug dealing house here on Greenmount Avenue. And I remember a friend of mine who was uh, helping me in some youth ministry, and she said, as I was taking Maria and my early firstborn, Rebecca, down here, on Greenmount Avenue, she said, shame on you. Shame on you for taking your wife and your child down into that place. I remember the sharp words that she said to me. 
You know, I'm glad I did not listen to her. You know, God will call us to do hard things. What hard thing is it possible that God is calling you to today? What is he calling you to that maybe you're having a great resistance towards? God wants you to know him. I uh, recently uh, was called by a pastor who was pastoring an urban inner-city church, a multi-ethnic church. It was a rather young church. And he called me up and he said, I'm thinking very hard about stepping down. Uh, he says, the reason I stay is primarily because I have no way, I'll, I have no other way I know that I can support my family. And he says, and I fear if I go, the church will implode. He says, I have no idea how to lead this church from a human standpoint. And so he was being very frank with me, and I just, you know, met with him to listen and to pray and to give some thoughts to where his situation was, which is actually many, many times I've been there. And he decided on that particular Sunday that he was going to preach on Second Chronicles 20, which was about the Israelites uh, being overwhelmed by uh, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. And he calls out to God. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we find in that event that, of course, God was victorious over those enemies. Good things happen when we come to the end of ourselves when we realize that we do not have the capacity to do the things that maybe God is calling us to do. You know, God comes to those who are broken, and he comes to strengthen, and he comes to bring revival. But what helps, what helps in a situation like this is to know that while we might be fleeing God, God is pursuing us. And so we see God pursuing. In verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You know, God will pursue the hard heart of a rebellious prophet, <laughs> That's of where he is so full of his own self-centered righteousness that he can't see his own sin and his need for grace, and he doesn't have the capacity to see the Ninevites' need for grace either. And we can hear the creaking timbers as they stress and the pounding of the hall with the ship as it is being torn and the sailors, these experienced mariners, are feeling uh, the end of their life. And here Jonah, Jonah is passive, he's asleep. He's exhausted from all the spiritual, emotional energy of his flight. He is in the bowels of this ship, and he is fast asleep. Maybe he's almost in a trance-like. And the captain's confounded about this. He says, what is this passenger doing sleeping? How can this passenger sleep? He goes down to the innards of the ship, and he says, wake up, you sleeper. Cry out to your God. Maybe your God will hear this and, and save us. <clears throat> it's clear that there's an acknowledgement that we are all interconnected, that we are all related to one another. What happens to us or what we do affects other people. 
Martin Luther King said, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all the others. And so Jonah knew that what he had done is negatively impacting these sailors. We are in this web, but God comes to us because this is ultimately God's web. We are ultimately, as his children, in God's web, and we cannot get away from him. You know, Philippians 1, 6 is a great comfort. This is Paul's word in Philippians. He says, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What does that say? It says, this is what it says. If you've been called by God, if, if you have given your life to Christ, if you are a believer, uh, you're a believer because he has opened your eyes and has opened your heart to receive him. And if that is the case, and he has claimed you as his child, here's what the scriptures are telling us, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He who began a good work, he who started it, will complete it. You might slip and slide, you might backslide, you might, and you will fall, and you will stumble, and you will sin. But what this says is that he who began a good work will complete it. And so... The promise of God is that he will complete his good work. So what does God use to come after us? You know, when we're trying to run from him, he uses everything. <laughs> he uses everything in his arsenal. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Jonah is a lot like the sovereignty. Uh, it shows a lot about the sovereignty of God over all things. He sends a great wind. Job 41, 31 says, He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Uh, he has been called the Lord of the storm. And so we see God sending the storm. At the end of this chapter, we see that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Okay, He causes a storm. He appoints a storm. He appoints a great fish. In chapter 4, he appoints a plant to grow over his head to give him shade. And then he appoints a worm to attack that plant and to send the scorching wind. What this says is that this God of the scriptures is not limited anywhere. He is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things. And Isaiah 14 says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn back? Now, why does God labor so hard with such poor witnesses who are self-centered, selfish saints. Why is it that he is determined not only to redeem hardened rebels, but to sanctify redeemed rebels? I remember uh, my pastor telling me, he said, Craig, God is as much as interested in shaping and growing up your faith as he is in your ministry to others. God is not a utilitarian God who just wants to use you for his mission without loving you in his mission. He doesn't just want us to be used to achieve his objectives and goals. We are part of his objectives and goals. He doesn't 
discard us when it doesn't appear that we're any more used to the team. A lot of NFL players have been cut uh, this week, and they know, they know the pain of that when you don't measure up. But God doesn't cut off his family members. God is interested in coaching, shaping, and transforming us. And Jesus loves his disciples. He has their interest at heart as he is in mission to the world. Do you sense God pursuing you? Do you hear uh, the old spiritual uh, song, Oh, sinner man, where are you going to run to? Where are you going to run to? No place to hide. And so why are you running? Are you running from God? How are you running from God right now in your life? Another quote from Herman Melville says, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. <laughs> we need help. And so we see, not only does we see a pursuing God, but we see a sinner outed. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And there were these five rapid questions, five targeted questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And who are your people? You know, what's interesting in Jonah's response, he never told them that he was a prophet. <laughs> he never, he ne we never see in here that he really tells them what his occupation was or what his mission was. But he does confess who his people are. And he does confess and he witnesses to the reality of the God that he worships. And so we see in this passage that Jonah is true to making sure that these sailors know that he is a worshiper of the Most High God, the creator of the oceans and the sea, of the heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so all the eyes, as he confesses, all the eyes of the, of the sailors, these mariners, are fixed on Jonah. Martin Luther said, not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He finds no nook or corner in all of creation, not even in hell, where he might crawl in. But he must needs expose himself to the gaze of all creatures and stand before them in all of his ignominy. Ignamoni. Somebody help me. All right. <clears throat> Numbers 32 says, You may be sure of this. Your sin will find you out. <laughs> your sin will find you out. <laughs> you know, we, we know that our sins will find us out. Um, you know, it's interesting, this this last few weeks, uh, there's been all this, this uh, rob out the surveillance, the satellite surveillance or you know, aerial surveillance over Baltimore uh, to try to you know, have more information about possible crimes and, and catching criminals. And, but we know that uh, we're always being watched. <laughs> uh, we're always being watched. We cannot get away from the presence of God. His eye is always upon us, but his presence is always with us. And so 
what we need to recognize here is that while this sinner is outed, while his sin is exposed, what we know is that the God of all grace is still working through Jonah, even in his disobedience. God is working through Jonah to even reveal the nature of the true God. They were worshiping all these other gods of various localities. They were uh, pantheists. Uh, they were in a pantheistic panic. They're all crying out to their gods to save them. And Jonah says, but I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth. I, made, I worship the God who made everything. I worship the Lord God. And so he reveals himself. What's good about this is that God doesn't leave us uh, to remain in our sin. He will expose us, but he will correct us in order to conform us and reform us and send us back on mission. Uh, one, of the great, one of the great things and the great comforts that I have when I think about Jesus' work with the apostles is that they were constantly doing stupid stuff, saying stupid things, all the way up to his crucifixion. Uh, the, the evening before he was crucified, they're asking, who's the greatest among them? And can I sit on your right hand or your right hand when you enter your kingdom? And then Jesus gets ready to die for them. It's an amazing thing when you see just the kind of the pride, the arrogance, the pursuit of their own personal glory. And Jesus has been with them all three years, and he's now at the end of the training. <laughs> and uh, he, it's, this is really amazing to me. And then Peter, the apostle, the rock of the church, the head uh, apostle, is a racist. <laughs> In Galatians 2, uh, we find that Paul has to confront Peter publicly about him uh, withdrawing himself from fellowship with the Gentiles. Uh, I am really utterly amazed how God would use such fallen uh, people and fallen leaders, uh, but yet he is committed to continue to develop those leaders uh, who continue to be humble and are willing to be used by him. And so God pursues Jonah. And he reveals himself uh, to this rebellious prophet. He reveals his saving grace to uh, these desperate mariners. Uh, and we find uh, in this final desperation, after exhausting all of their means, they throw Jonah overboard in this raging sea. And God appoints this great fish to save Jonah. And the storm is calm. The sailors are saved, not merely physically, but spiritually, it says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a great sacrifice, or offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the word that they're using, they're acknowledging this God as Jehovah. They, this is the personal name of God that, that Jonah was using. It's different from all the, they're calling out to their gods. This is the Lord. This is Jehovah. This, they are acknowledging, they are offering sacrifices and making vows to the Lord. You know, and all of this is a backstory to the bigger story of God wanting to bring repentance and salvation to the wicked Nineveh of 120,000 people. What an amazing movement of the grace and the salvation of God for lost people and for a rebellious prophet. It is an amazing thing. Uh, where is your heart today? Can you feel the heart of God for you, pursuing you, wherever you are, in whatever state you're in, however far you think that you've run from God? 
Can you feel him pursuing you and wanting you back into his mission? Can you feel his love for you? Can you identify with a world in pain? Uh, so this week, Mother Teresa was canonized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and actually, our very own Jonathan Piss, son writer here, uh, had an article in today's Sun paper. Uh, she outloved you at every turn. And uh, I went through a, uh, a museum about her uh, in Florida, uh, and this is a picture uh, when she's 18 years old. This is when she left her family uh, to go into uh, the convent. And uh, this was at the age, and, and as a norm back then, a missionary, when they would leave, often they would never see their family again. And this was the last time she ever saw her mother. But she says this, uh, by blood and origin, I am all Albanian. My citizenship is India, is Indian. I am a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the whole world. As to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. And that's how she lived and that's how she served. Now let me say this. If you're a believer, if you've given your life to Christ, you're a saint. <laughs> you've been all been canonized by Jesus. Okay? Which means that he's declared you totally perfect in his sight, through his blood, that his righteousness has become your righteousness. He took on your filth on the cross. He paid for your sins, and he has declared you saints. And in the New Testament, all believers are considered saints. But now, of course, Mother Teresa, she might be a better saint than you. <laughs> <laughs> but in the kingdom of God, the only way that we're entering in that kingdom is through the blood of Jesus. You know, Baltimore is a great place to enter the heart of Jesus. There are so many opportunities to serve and to be part of the compassionate heart of God in this great city. This, uh, recently, the Baltimore Health Department uh, revealed the disparities that take place in our city. And uh, it's painful. It's painful, uh, the, the suffering that so many of our citizens of this great city are experiencing. One of the things is that 30% of our city kids have had at least two traumatic childhood experiences versus 19% statewide. Uh, there's a lot of trauma that's going on. I was just hearing uh, that yesterday a grandmother and two of her children were shot here somewhere in Baltimore. How does God feel about this city? God astoundingly persistent and unrelenting great pursues the fleeing prophet, unexpectedly delivers him from drowning, and returns him to the dry land of his calling. These actions declare God's tenacious commitment to reconciliation with humanity. Uh, last Sunday, Steve, our elder, was leading worship, and in his prayer, uh, he, he said uh, some things that really captured me, and he usually writes his prayers out, and then he just says, he throws them away. I said, I want, I want to see your prayer. He gave me his card, and these are some of the lines in Steve's uh, prayer of adoration yesterday. He says, thank you for not giving up on us, Lord Jesus, and thank you that you have not given up in calling more and more souls to yourself. You continue to save, Lord, continue to draw people to yourself. 
And so we pray for the people of our city, Baltimore, where you have planted us. Give us your heart, Lord Jesus, for the least of the lost here in Baltimore. Help your church to be witnesses and presence here in Baltimore. We pray that justice would reign in Baltimore, that jobs would replace gangs, drugs, and killing, that our children would graduate from high school and that there would be justice in our schools. We pray that your people would be your witnesses by being united and loving and serving the people of this city and that you would transform the name and reputation of Baltimore from the murder capital and the troubled city of riots and the home of homicide to the place where your kingdom is advancing and changing lives. You are a present hope and redeemer. I'm glad I saved that prayer. That is a prayer, I think, that we want to express in our own lives, in our own hearts. But, it, but we struggle, and we need to encourage each other. Uh, I'm, we're going to have a... Uh, we usually have a concert of prayer on the first Sunday uh, of every other month, and in October the 2nd, uh, I'm inviting anyone for the concert of prayer at my house on 234 Burke. At 5 o'clock, we're going to have a... Uh, kind of a potluck dinner and discussion and prayer around how our church can grow stronger in our outreach. How we can be a stronger outreaching church uh, that makes disciples who make disciples, who see community groups growing and multiplying, and even the possibility of seeing other churches in other places uh, planted that would exhibit the reconciling, gracious, missional work of God. So if you're interested in just coming out and uh, praying, about the, those things of being a stronger outreach in church, please come 5 o'clock, you'll hear more about that. We need to constantly cultivate an awareness of the love and the compassion of God. We need to constantly uh, encourage each other because our hearts tend to drift towards coldness and hard-heartedness. We tend towards becoming calloused. Uh, we hear so many reports of hard things, and our own lives go through hard things, and there's a tendency to just become closed up and not allow our hearts to feel because we just feel overwhelmed. And so we need to constantly come to a place of grace. We need to constantly come to a place where we can hear the love of God fresh again. And so Jesus comes to us at this table. You know, the only words of institution that we have in the scriptures concerning the Lord's Supper, apart from the gospel accounts, in the epistles is in 1 Corinthians 11. And that context is a rebuke to the church because their hearts were cold. They were humiliating the poor in their midst. He says, is this the Lord's Supper? No, this isn't the Lord's Supper you're taking. And he's rebuking them. And then he says, for, for, the, he says this, he says, for, I received from the Lord what I also passed to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, took the bread, and he, and he took it, and he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins. Drink of this in remembrance of me. And he encourages them not to partake of this bread and this, this wine, this fruit of the vine, uh, without examining yourselves, to make sure you're discerning the body of the Lord, that the body of the Lord are brothers and sisters over all the chasms of life, the poor and the rich, the Gentiles, the Jews, the slave and the free. We are all one people. He says, you need to recognize this body when you come to this table. This blood was shed for all people. 
And so Jesus comes and he calls us. Jesus ask if the officers could come forward as we prepare ourselves for this supper. Uh, if you have given your life to Christ, if you have confessed your sins and you've acknowledged him as Lord in your life and you're seeking to follow him as Lord in the church, then he welcomes you to this table. If you haven't, I'd like to encourage you to 